Well, good morning. As Aaron said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. and uh, Grateful to be with you, excited to bring God's Word to you this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Judges entitled, Right in the Eye. And this morning we're going to be in Judges chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 16. I'd like to ask for you to stand if you're able, as is our custom out of reverence for the Word of God. Judges 10, 6 through 16. says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us Whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it is true. We believe that it is sufficient, that it is necessary for us to know you and to know ourselves. And so, God, we pray that you would speak to us today from your word, that we would encounter you this morning, the living God, and through that encounter, we would be transformed. God, I ask that you would give us all eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As a pastor, I'm often invited to walk through difficult circumstances with people. These circumstances can range from job loss to addiction to mental health battles, you name it. Life 
is hard and often invited to step into that hardness. Without a doubt, the circumstance that I have found the most difficult to walk through with people is abuse. I'm so often heartbroken by the stories that I hear of people being treated as less than human, often by someone who has promised to love them. And I think what often makes these circumstances even harder is that so often the victims of abuse are unwilling to separate themselves from their abuser. I'll be sitting with these people, these men and women, and they'll share how they really believe that he or she is sorry this time. They really believe that he or she is going to stop hurting them. And yet in the moment, I so desperately want this person to see that the the abuser isn't really sorry, that he or she is not going to stop hurting them. I so desperately want the victim to say enough is enough and to stop putting up with this lip service that has no substance to it. But as I was thinking about this all-too-common scenario of false promises and false repentance made by abusers, I began to reflect on how much my own relationship with God often mirrors that of the abuser. How often I make false promises and offer up false repentance to my Heavenly Father. How often I say, I'm truly sorry, God. I'll never do it again, I promise only to turn around and do the exact same thing the very next day. And as I was thinking about this, fear began to creep up inside of me. I began to wonder, when is God going to say enough is enough to me? When is he going to write me off? And, And not trying to scare you, but our text this morning appears to be an example of just that of God saying to his people, enough is enough. I'm through with your unfaithful, ungrateful, hypocritical ways. And so in light of this frightening response by God, I want to spend some time in this text in hopes that we might avoid a similar scenario, a scenario in which God writes us off. Three points this morning. Why God why Israel and where's the hope? Let's begin. I want to start by answering the question, why? Why does God choose to respond this way here in Judges chapter 10? Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you might have noticed that there's something glaringly different about this chapter in Judges. You see, the previous nine chapters, there's been this pattern, this cycle that has repeated itself over and over again. And I'll remind you of that pattern if you haven't been with us. First, God's people forget him. They turn to other gods. And then God brings suffering into their lives, suffering that helps them to see what they have done. And and because of this suffering, God's people cry out to him. And then lastly, each and every time, without fail, God comes to the rescue. But here in chapter 10, for the first time, this this pattern, this cycle breaks down. 
It begins much in the same way. Verse 6, Israel has forgotten God. They've turned to worship other gods. And verse 7, as a result, God sells them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Again, God is ushering in suffering so his people will see the error of their ways. And then, like clockwork, as a result of the suffering, verse 10, Israel cries out to God. And so far, the cycle is holding true, but then something strange happens in verse 11. This time, in spite of the people's cries, God refuses to come to the rescue. And he makes this startlingly definitive statement. He says, I will save you no more. Done. So what happened? Why does God all of a sudden choose not to respond to the cries of his people? Now, some commentators argue that the reason God responds this way is because here in chapter 10, we have idolatry on steroids because the sin is so much greater this time. And, and no doubt Israel is going buck wild in their idol worship here. The text says they serve not just the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but also the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, Philistines, they're serving everybody's gods. If you've got a God, we will serve them. But I don't think that the breadth of their idolatry is what motivated God to respond differently this time. Look again with me at verse 14. This is what God says after he tells them he will save them no more. He says, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. What is God saying here? He's saying, I'm not buying it. I'm not convinced that you have truly turned from your idols to worship me. But why is it that this time God is not convinced? Why is God not willing to receive their repentance as authentic? Look again at the text. Verse 11 says, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and the Philistines? The reason God doesn't believe their repentance is real is because they've been down this road many times before. The Israelites have said they're sorry in the past, but each and every time, normally not long after God has intervened, they quickly run to serve another idol again. I think we can all relate to God's frustration with his people here. All of us have probably been in a situation where someone has wronged you and afterward they gave you a heartfelt apology. I'm really sorry. And they promised never to do it again, but then maybe a week later or a month later, it happens again. And once again, they say, I'm really sorry, really, really sorry. I promise it won't happen again. But then it does, and it happens over and over again. And eventually, you begin to realize maybe they aren't really that sorry. Maybe their repentance is not real. Now, as I mentioned before, the goal in studying this text is for us to avoid a similar such scenario than what happened here in Judges 10. So... I want us to look at why Israel behaved this way. Why did they continue to go back to these other gods? And I want to argue that the reason their repentance is not real was because for Israel, 
there was another God, a little g God, that was more desirable for them to worship. But it may not be the, the little g God that you would think. See, what I think the text shows us is that the little g God, the, the idol that they were worshiping was not Baal, it's not Ashtaroth, but rather the idol of comfort. Let me show you where we see this. Verse 14, God calls out Israel on the true nature of, the, of their idolatry. He says, go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. What God is pointing out here is that Israel didn't cry out to God because they wanted God. Israel just wants the distress to go away. They're crying out to God not to get God, but to get his goods. They want him to serve them, to give them what they want. They just wanted the pain to stop. I can hear your potential objection. What's wrong with that? Wouldn't we all want the pain to stop if we were in a similar such situation, experiencing 18 years of being crushed and oppressed? Well, there's an important distinction here that we need to take note of, the difference between desire and idolatry. No doubt anyone in Israel's situation would desire for the pain to stop. That's normal, that's healthy, that's good. And God would not be displeased with that desire. But that's not idolatry. When we see new idolatry referenced in the New Testament, the, the word is epithumia. And it's best translated as inordinate desire or ultimate desire. And the difference between desire and idolatry is idolatry occurs when a desire for something good becomes an ultimate, all-consuming desire. It's when that thing becomes something that we cannot live without. Or as the Dutch theologian Bob Goodsword says, idolatry arises the moment the end indiscriminately justifies every means. Think about Israel again. They certainly began with a normal, healthy desire for the suffering to stop. But clearly this desire has gotten out of hand. It's begun something that they could not live without. Comfort is something that they desperately need. And we know this for sure because it's actually not until verse 16 that Israel actually puts away the foreign gods, which means when Israel is crying out in verse 10, they were certainly crying out to other gods at the very same time. That Israel is saying, anybody that can make this comfort go, this distress, this suffering go away, I will worship you. Just give me what I want. And we can see how comfort has become an ultimate thing, an inordinate desire. They're willing to try any means necessary to achieve that end, even sin. Before we go any further, I want to encourage you to do a little bit of introspection in light of what we see here in Judges 10. I want you to look at your own life, and I want you to think about where this idolatry is creeping up in your own day-to-day -day struggles. I want you to look at what some have called the sin beneath the sin. Not the specific ways necessarily that you have failed to obey God, but, but what those specific sins reveal about the things that you are really worshiping. For example, maybe you did something unethical at work or at school the other day. 
you can know for sure that that sin did not occur in a vacuum, that there was some deeper idolatrous desire that led you to behave in that way. It could be that you believe that you need the approval of your boss or of your professor, or maybe you believe that you have to get that raise or, or that grade, that success is something that you cannot live without. Maybe you yelled at your kids the other day. Again, that sin is necessarily linked to some deeper heart desire. Maybe your desire more than anything is to have a perfect put together family and your kids are getting in the way of that. Or maybe you live for relaxation and comfort and those crazy kids were not making that possible in the moment. Maybe you clicked on something you shouldn't have last night on the internet. No doubt that sin also is linked to some deeper heart desire. Maybe it's your desire for control or intimacy that has become the ultimate thing in your life and therefore you're even willing to pursue pretend intimacy on the internet to satisfy that longing. We could spend hours digging in and looking at the sin beneath the sin in our lives, but I just want to encourage you as we get deeper into this text that this introspection, this heart work is so important. It's so necessary for us to do in order for us to be able to actually put to death the idols in our life. We have to first discover what that true idol is that we are truly living for so that we can know how to fight against them. Israel was blind to the idol that they were living for, which caused them to continue to run back to these little gods over and over again. Which leads me to my second point. Why Israel? What, what is wrong with you, Israel? And, and really, what is wrong with us? Why do we live like this? Why do we continue serving these gods that deep down we know cannot fulfill the longings of our hearts? And the answer is that idolatry leads to slavery. Look again with me at the text. This is clearly not the first time that God has called Israel out on its idolatry. We've been reading about this since chapter 1. But what's very interesting in Judges is that every time Israel worships the God of a nation, that nation is the nation that ends up being the one to oppress them. Here in chapter 10, Israel adds the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines to their list of idols. And guess what? In chapter 10, it's the Ammonites who oppress them. And then in a few chapters later, it's the Philistines in chapter 13. So why does that happen? How does this enslavement come about? Verse 7 says that the anger of God was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of of the Ammonites. So it appears as though God had a role to play in this enslavement. But what does it mean for God to sell his people? When we sell something to someone else, we are giving them full rights to do with that thing whatever they please. And clearly God is not fully abandoning his people here, but most certainly he is in one sense taking a step back from Israel. As one commentator says, by selling them, God is choosing to stop protecting them in some way. He's choosing to let the things they have been serving actually begin to dominate and own them. 
you see what the text is, is getting at here? When we worship idols, God often chooses to allow those idols, those things in which we have put our hope to become ruling powers in our lives. This is the message of Romans 1, right? Paul says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I think we've all experienced what this is like in our own lives, whether we recognize it or not. For, for example, think about someone, maybe it's you, maybe it's someone else, but think about someone who chooses to live for money instead of God, who worships money. What often happens is that money becomes the master of that person. Before they know it, they discover how money has begun to rule their life, how it controls their heart and emotions, how every decision must be filtered through the question, is this going to give me more money? Is this going to help me to become more wealthy? Or think about a person who worships approval. Before they know it, fame will rule their life. It will control their heart and emotions. And this person will be unable to do anything that might tarnish their reputation, even if it's the right thing to do. This is what it looks like to be sold into the hand of our idol. And we know from this text and others that the reason God does this is not to be vindictive, but he's trying to show us the futility of our idol worship. He's saying, if you want to serve another God besides me, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. And then he asks the question, maybe with a smirk on his face, how's that working for you? How's that God at saving you, at fulfilling you, at satisfying you? That's what we mean when idolatry leads to slavery. When we allow a desire to become inordinate, more often than not, we end up serving that idol rather than it serving us as we had hoped. And you would think that this experience of slavery might actually motivate us to avoid idolatry, that as we experience this in our lives, that, that we, would, we would normally choose not to idol worship anymore. But the scary thing is, as we see in this text, not only does idolatry lead to slavery, but also slavery often leads to further idolatry. Look at verse 7. We would think that after a nation oppresses Israel, that Israel would in turn hate the gods of that nation. That would make sense. But what we notice here in chapter 10 is that even after the Ammonites oppressed and enslaved Israel in chapter 3, here they are again serving the gods of the Ammonites all over again, leading to another round of enslavement by the Ammonites. They're worshiping the same idols that let them down all over again. Now, before we judge the Israelites, let me show you how our hearts do the exact same thing. Think about someone who idolizes romantic relationships how this person might sacrifice everything in order to obtain marriage. But then let's say that marriage fails. One would think that this person might in turn realize that idolizing relationships is not a great idea. Maybe I shouldn't do that again because of the suffering and the pain that it caused. But the reality is normally... Just like Israel, instead of bondage motivating us to turn from our idols, it has the opposite effect, and it calls us to serve these idols even more fervently. For the person who idolizes relationships, they 
most likely will not stop worshiping relationships. They're just going to assume they need a better relationship, a better spouse. Maybe then the idol will give me what I truly want. As Tim Keller says, we are so enslaved by our idols, so blinded by their allure, that we see our problem not as worshiping an idol, but not worshiping an idol enough. The bondage that we experience in idol worship is so powerful. How quickly do we become far too familiar and comfortable with our chains. And we believe there's no hope of freedom. This brings me to my third and final point. What hope do we have? Where's the hope in this text? Our text seems to reveal that God is not interested in our lip service, that he's not willing to respond to us when we choose to worship him and idols. And yet, as our text reveals, we're all enslaved by idols, and we seem to lack the power to take the chains off. So, we, so when, then where is the hope in this text? It seems as though it's only a matter of time before God is going to say enough is enough to us. And write us off once and for all. Look again with me at the last verse in our text. It says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. If you were to continue reading in our text, you'd see that immediately following this passage, God raises up another judge. He raises up a man named Jephthah, and this man once again rescues God's people. And at first glance, it would appear that what happened in chapter 10 is that after the Israelites received this harsh warning from God, that they finally repented for real, and then God saved them. And therefore, the hope for us is we need to somehow muster up as best we can the most sincere and authentic repentance that we can bring about, and then just maybe God will come and rescue us. But that's not what happened in the text. And we know this because, first of all, we will soon see that Israel's repentance in chapter 10 was no different than any of the other repentances that have happened before. You have to flip your Bible one page to see Israel once again engulfed in idol worship. So they didn't mean it any more this time than they did before. But that's not the only reason we know that it wasn't because Israel was able to muster up some profoundly authentic repentance that God was motivated to save them. Look closely at the last words in our section. It says, and he, God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. What the text says is it was actually Israel's misery and not their repentance that motivated God to intervene. Now, what in the world is going on here? In verse 13, God definitively declares, enough is enough. I'm through with you. I will save you no more. But then here in verse 16, God is saying he simply cannot sit back and watch his people suffer for a moment longer. So which is it, God? Are you going to make them pay for what they've done or are you going to love them anyway? And herein lies the major tension in the book of Judges. Will God continue to forgive his people over and over again? But what about his holiness? What about his justice? Or will God abandon his people because of their unfaithfulness? 
But what about this promise of commitment and faithfulness to them? I love how we see both sides of this tension so beautifully pictured in Judges 2. I'm going to read this text for you. It says, and God says to Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land and I swore that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive the other nations out before you. They shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As one commentator says, it's as if God's saying to Israel, you've put me in an impossible situation. I've sworn to bless my beloved people. and At the same time, I've sworn not to bless you as disobedient people. How can I solve this dilemma? And as we read the book of Judges, we're left to ponder this question about the character of God. Will he finally give up on Israel? Or what of his promise to be faithful? Or will he just give in to his people? What of his promise, his commitment to holiness? How can this dissonance be resolved? The truth is, it's actually not until a few thousand years later that we actually get the answer. It comes in a place called Calvary on an old rugged cross. Because it's here that God does in fact say enough is enough, but not in the way that we would have ever imagined so motivated by the misery of his people, by the misery of you and the misery of me, God sent his only son to die in our place. And on that cross, our sin, our idolatry is placed on Christ and his righteousness is gifted to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's there that the tension is fully resolved. God satisfies his justice because sin was punished. At the same time, God satisfies his loving faithfulness by keeping his covenant with us, forgiving and accepting his people. As the Apostle Paul so poetically points out, it's the cross and only the cross that allows God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the cross that paves the way for God to love us both conditionally and unconditionally. How does this reality give us hope? Well, contrary to what we may have thought to be true in our first read of Judges 10, our hope is not in our ability to muster up sincere repentance, to fully put away the idols of our hearts. We have no chance if that is our hope but rather our hope is entirely in the grace of God and a God who was so impatient over our misery that he was willing to go to great lengths to bring us back to himself. But church, this is not cheap grace. This kind of grace does not motivate us or encourage us to continue in our idolatry. The grace of God that we see here produces a fruit in us. It brings about a transformation in our lives. Listen to how Paul says this in Titus 2. When we experience this grace, 
this is what happens. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And it's this grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then in verse 14, that same grace makes us zealous for good works. What Paul is saying is that the grace of God produces marvelous fruit. It produces godliness, self-control, zeal for good works. So then as we're, as we're groping with this text and looking for application, what we need to know is that when idolatry is present in our life, we need not try to muster up the most sincerest repentance possible. We need to lean into and rest in the grace of God. We need to know that we are not tasting fully his good grace for us that we have lost sight of, we're blind to this gift that we have in Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as we prepare to leave this morning, I hope that you can be encouraged. Encouraged that although this text is made plain that each and every one of us is enslaved to the idols of our heart, you need not be afraid that God will say to you, enough is enough. Take courage in the fact that he has dealt with our idolatry once and for all. And therefore, there is hope for us to indeed be set free from these idols in our heart and truly worship him as we live into the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we are like Israel, that we commit the same sins over and over and over again because we are in bondage to the idols of our heart. And not only that, but we choose even more bondage. We, we run to idolatry even in the face of the suffering and slavery that it produces. But, Father, we take heart in the fact that you will never abandon us. You will never say to us because of our sin, enough is enough. I'm through with you. And we know that you will never say that because you have dealt with that sin on the cross. So, Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek to live out this Christian life, to rest in your grace. And would your grace produce this marvelous fruit in us? Would it produce righteousness, holiness, love, grace, peace? I pray that for myself and each person in this room. In Jesus' name.